We start this evening with the extreme fire conditions across the country. Nine provinces and territories are currently battling blazes that have forced the evacuation of more than 100,000 people across the country since early May. New modeling released today shows the risks of wildfires are set to increase this month and remain, quote, unusually high throughout the summer. We're joined tonight by Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Mr. Wilkinson, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. One of the more striking things, it seems, Mr. Minister, about this year's forest fire season is, is just how early this all seems to be happening. Earlier today, you used the word sobering to describe the situation. I'm, I'm wondering, what should Canadians be bracing for as we move into summer? Well, this morning, we talked a little bit about the forecast. Uh, my Department of Natural Resources Canada puts out a monthly forecast in terms of what we are seeing and the risk level associated with uh, with what we are seeing with respect to um, to temperature and, and weather going forward and how that relates to fire risk. And, and unfortunately, what we are seeing is that we expect temperatures to remain elevated and there, it to be quite dry, which means that the risks of forest fires, which are very bad right now, are likely to get worse um, as we move forward. So I do think it's quite sobering. Um, we have seen enormous amounts of uh, fire activity, uh, far, far in excess of what we have seen in the past number of years. Um, and I think we, we have to brace ourselves for it perhaps becoming worse uh, over the coming summer. And to be clear, what I'm hearing you say, I mean, you can't predict fires, but you can, you can predict to the best of your ability the conditions that lead to fires. Yeah, that's, that's a great way of saying it. And of course, you know, the conditions that exist um, in order to generate fires, you either need, you know, lightning strikes or, or you need um, human-caused uh, act, activity. Um, but, uh, and so you're right, it, it's possible that uh, even if the conditions are, are such that we, uh, they, are, they create the potential for fires, it's, it's possible that we won't see um, an enormous problem going forward. But I would say to you, the conditions are such that it is likely that we are going to see continued high levels of fire activity. What sorts of strain does it put on the systems that are in place uh, in terms of firefighters and other resources uh, that need to be stood up for situations like this when it's not just one province or two provinces that are experiencing this sort of thing and you can draw resources from other provinces, but when multiple provinces are all experiencing extreme fire conditions, uh, and that doesn't seem like it's going to ease over the course of the coming weeks or months. Well, it certainly does create stresses. I mean, we have in this country the Canadian Interagency Fire Centre in Winnipeg, which helps to coordinate um, the resources that exist across provinces and in the federal government to try to ensure that if we have real challenges, for example, in Ontario, that that equipment and firefighters from British Columbia can go in to, to, to help and that we can make the best uh, use of the resources that are available. But as you say, if we actually are seeing elevated levels of, of um, the conditions that could lead to forest fires in all provinces, and we are seeing reasonably high levels of, of fire activity in many provinces, it makes the sharing of resources much more problematic because everybody needs them. Um, what that does, obviously, is create more pressure on the existing resources and the people. I mean, firefighters are people. They get tired. Um, and, uh, and so it does create more stress. One of the relief valves uh, that we are, are working to ensure we, uh, we are acting on is to have international resources come in. In the same way that Canadian firefighters go around the world to support others, 
um, international partners will send uh, resources to us during times that we are um, that we are under under stress. And so there are several hundred firefighters from the United States, from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and and uh, and now France that uh, that are sending us resources to try to ensure that we have sufficient resources um, to fight the fires. Has a call gone out to other countries as well? Uh, certainly, you know, we have talked to many in the international community and we, are, we would welcome contributions from others. But what I would say is thus far, we've been very pleased with the response from international partners to, to the needs that we have. And when we look internally, and we have heard certainly a lot of instances, including in First Nations, where uh, training is underway to get people up to speed so they can help fight these forest fires. How long does that process take? Are we talking, are we taking people that have some experiencing fighting fighters, maybe not forest fires, but they have some background in that? Or are we taking people that have no background in fighting fires of any sort and trying to get them up to speed to help with this effort? Well, I mean, the first line uh, in terms of deploying people who are not um, trained firefighters or not regular firefighters is the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, they have some training, but they also they, they still require typically three or four days of additional training as we deploy them. There are now Canadian forces in a number of provinces uh, and territories across the country uh, working to fight these fires. Certainly, we have a number of pilots ongoing with uh, Indigenous communities to train up firefighters. Those typically take a number of weeks or months. Some of those were underway, uh, and so we do expect that some of those those folks will be able to assist. But we do certainly, I mean, it's a dangerous, uh, a dangerous occupation. We do want to make sure people are trained. When I, when, I was a, when I was a young person growing up in northern Saskatchewan, um, I went out firefighting in the bush a number of times. And, and um, what they used to do is just come in, pick us up, put us in a float plane and fly us out there with almost no training. I'm not sure that's necessarily the best way of doing it. We want to make sure that people are safe, but they're also doing an effective job. I'm curious as well, and, and I guess realizing that this may cross ministerial portfolios, we've been primarily discussing as a nation, I guess, firefighting, suppression. What kind of supports are in place? Uh, I think the latest statistic was at some point already this year, more than 100,000 people have been evacuated because of forest fires. What sort of, uh, of supports are in place for those who are forced to leave their homes because of these fires? Well, there certainly are supports. Uh, as you will appreciate, firefighting historically has been the purview of provinces and territories. Um, the federal government increasingly has been working to try to ensure that we're putting in place supports for provinces and territories because of the fact that these challenges are getting worse, uh, largely as a function of, of climate change. Um, and so we now have programs to help provinces buy equipment, to help provinces um, in terms of the training of, of firefighters, um, but certainly um, the provinces and territories have stepped up to try to actually provide um, provisional assistance to people who have been forced out of their homes. And we are working with provinces and the Red Cross to try to create funding that will also help with those kinds of things. We continue now with our conversation with Canada's Natural Resources Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson. Before the break, Mr. Minister, we talked about the projections for this fire season to continue to be, quote, unusually high, the risk of these fires. But it was also stated this morning that you believe we have the resources to deal with that. What happens, though, if the wildfires end up worse than the data currently predicts? Are we ready for that? Well, we're certainly looking at all of those things. I mean, I, I think we are close to fully utilizing a lot of the resources we have in place, and we may need to find additional ways to bring on further resources, including 
for example, as you pointed out, training additional people who can actually help us with some of these things. One of the things that we are doing in that regard is we actually are just just, uh, in the process of starting a program with firefighters that exist in communities to actually train them on wildland fire to help us try to manage that whole interface between communities and wildfires, which we are seeing increasingly. Um, That's the challenge that is actually forcing people out of their communities. We're also going to continue to talk to international partners about if we need additional assistance, um, where could that come from? Also curious about forest management, and this, I guess, takes us off the topic of what we're facing in the here and now and everything that, that you're facing as as you and other ministers and other jurisdiction, provinces, municipalities try and deal with this forest fire season. But if, if we can't control the length of fire seasons, which certainly seem to be getting longer and longer, what sort of forest management techniques are out there to implement to try and mitigate these sorts of fire events, extreme fire events in the future? Well, there are a number of things. I mean, I think certainly starting with the the whole area that's proximate to communities, it is about trying to ensure that we're not leaving uh, a lot of fuel on the ground that actually could uh, create real challenges for the community. It's about, I think more broadly in the forest itself, we have to continue to look at ways in which we can try to ensure that we are um, as much as is possible, taking out some of the additional fuel that actually exists there on the forest floor. So, for example, in areas of forestry that we're actually trying to clean up some of the residues that are actually left, um, ideally finding ways to utilize those to create, you know, biomass-based energy and those kinds of things, which can actually help um, fight climate change in a different way. But, but thinking about ways in which we can ensure that we're not leaving a lot on the forest floor that can actually be combustible. Are we past the point of no return when it comes to uh, allowing fires to burn themselves out? There's been a lot of discussion about how we've managed forests uh, over the last really probably century where the the impetus was to put out forest fires as soon as they start and that allowed this underbrush and dead wood to build up over over many many decades are we past the point where now we can just let a fire in the north burn because it's just it could be catastrophic well, certainly those that are anyway adjacent to communities, um, we, we obviously have a challenge in terms of letting those burn. Um, I, I think in terms of forest management, folks will tell you that there are times where, um, where it probably is the right answer to just let it burn itself out. And there are times where you actually use um, fire preventatively, where you're actually lighting fires to try to actually get rid of underbrush or, or to, to fall back on a fire that, that is out of control. So there are much, many different ways. I think we are learning more every day. But I think the biggest challenge is we're just seeing more and more fires and more that are actually coming adjacent to communities, which, you know, has happened in the past, but not not nearly as frequent uh, frequently. And, and again, um, the unfortunate reality is this is kind of the new normal. Um, you know, we are seeing longer seasons, as you said. We are seeing elevated temperatures. Those are Related to the fact that the climate is changing, uh, we need to find ways to actually adapt to that. We need to find ways, of course, to mitigate uh, carbon emissions so that we don't make this problem worse. But we are going to need to be thinking about how we adapt to the to the new normal. It doesn't appear that any Canadian will be left unimpacted by forest fire season this year. There are those who are uh, they're losing homes, they're losing livelihoods. But even if it's and I use just in quotations, air quality and those sorts of things. Everybody in some way will be impacted if they haven't already been. Do you have a message for Canadians? Well, I mean, certainly, uh, I think 
all, every Canadian's heart goes out to those that have been directly impacted in terms of their losing their homes, losing their businesses. But I do think that my message to Canadians is um, we are all being impacted. We are all, unfortunately, going to likely be impacted going forward. I think what this does is really underline the critical importance of us you know, trying to do what we can to not make this problem even worse. And that means, you know, aggressively fighting climate change and reducing carbon emissions. That is the only way we stop this problem from getting worse. Mr. Minister, thank you for your time this evening. All right. Thank you very much. Right now, though, we wanted to talk about Pride Month. June is Pride Month, uh, not only in Canada, but around the world. It's a, it's a month meant for celebration and for uplifting and for inclusion. This year, it is not without its challenges. Uh, in fact, I think it was just within the last day or two that the federal government offered $1.5 million for added security costs at Pride events. We've seen anti-Pride protests leading to empty desks in schools across the country. We remember the stories during the course of the NHL regular season where uh, teams were having Pride days, Pride events, and individual members of those teams would refuse to wear the Pride jerseys. But it can't be all about that. We're not going to shy away from that, but it can't be all about that. And we're happy to be joined tonight on the program by Dr. Christopher Wells, Dr. Wells is the Canada Research Chair for the Public Understanding of Sexual and Gender Minority Youth at McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta. Dr. Wells, welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I guess I just want to start by asking you why Pride Month is so important. Well, I think as we, we look around the world and we're we're seeing this growing uh anti-LGBTQ uh, backlash. Um, a lot can be traced to uh, what's been happening in Russia over the years and as uh, populist uh, far-right governments um, start to take hold in several countries. The, unfortunately, the convenient uh, scapegoats tend to be the LGBTQ community. Um, we just uh, we even recently saw in Uganda uh, past some of the, the strictest anti-LGBTQ laws in the world, where even just talking about, you know, uh, LGBTQ issues could result in the death penalty. So, uh, you know, there's concern about this blowing into the United States and and um, many members of the, the Republican Party, particularly in, in Texas and uh, Florida, that have targeted um, trans communities and schools and libraries and and um also uh far right uh, television and talk show uh talk shows that uh conveniently um perpetuate um, outdated stereotypes and misinformation so you know the worry is that that's uh, starting to seep into canada and it must be particularly disheartening because you would think in situations like this that 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 kind of rhetoric would would bubble up and then the people you know the quote unquote responsible people in leadership positions would be the one to stamp it out and it seems in some cases that it's it's coming it's being filtered down yeah well i think uh, social media is is has a lot to do with that um you know certainly since elon musk has taken over uh, twitter got rid of a lot of the policies that uh put put Hayden in check and monitored it and, and banned accounts. And now it really seems like a free-for-all. And social media has allowed those small, dark voices of a very tiny minority now to be uh, amplified and to, 
you know, find a larger uh, audience. So there's a lot of concern uh, there. And from where you sit, Dr. Was, do you think that, that this this mindset has always been there and and social media or the Internet or some of these high-profile figures are just allowing it to be amplified and, and, and spread maybe faster than it otherwise would? Or is this... Is this new? Is, is, is it actually just gaining? Are there more people that are feeling this way? Uh, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's not new. Uh, it's definitely uh, because of technology, being able to uh, find uh, uh, a larger audience given these new sort of uh, p- platforms. You know, it used to be that, you know, you could go on the street corner and, and yell, you know, uh, as loud as you want, but only a few people would hear you. And I think it also shows that the laws that we have are outdated. They're not keeping in pace with, you know, the proliferation of hate and these the new technologies that allow it to spread, you know, so so quickly. I think we have to hold uh, social media companies more responsible. We need to update the Criminal Code of Canada. There are very few successful prosecutions of hate crimes in this country because, you know, the, the bar has been set so uh, extremely high and that leads you know, the people who were targeted you know, traditionally, the, the Jewish community, the 2SLGBT community and the black community um, to uh, lose trust and, and confidence in the police and in the, in the government. So, you know, there's uh, there's a lot going on. And, and certainly we need more allies and more political leaders and corporate leaders and and religious leaders, too, because a lot of this hate, um, unfortunately, tends to be religiously motivated. Uh, all need to speak up and loudly denounce the hate that we're seeing. Um, you know, uh, it becomes really uh, important that um, you know, we don't meet this with silence, that we're, we're loudly den- denouncing um, what we're seeing happen in Canada and globally. And, and so in practical terms, what, do you, what would that allyship look like right now, uh, given what's out there uh, in the ether? Sure. For uh, Pride Month, uh, that's upon us in, in many communities across Canada. You know, get out and, and uh, support the events. Um, uh, talk to people of the 2S LGBT community. Um, you know, so, uh, in particularly our trans and uh, two-spirit and racialized communities are the ones that are being, you know, most uh, targeted for this kind of uh harmful, hateful rhetoric. So, you, you know, come alongside them, ask them what you can be doing to support them. Uh, I think, you know, it, it's really uh, important to, to signal our support for these communities when they're the most vulnerable. What are some, of, if there's something that you could combat in terms of the, the myths that are out there and that might be leading to some of this, uh, the rhetoric that's out there about the 2S LGBTQ community, what are like we hear about grooming now? We hear about the uh, the drag story times. We and 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 none of it seems to make a whole lot of sense. No, these are actually old, really tired and outdated stereotypes that are now coming back in in full force. It's actually quite surprising, you know, to many. Um, you know, this notion of grooming is connected to this uh, old belief that. Um, you know, goes back to many people might remember Anita Bryant and her Save Our Children Christian Crusade in the late 1970s that was all over the United States and, and came into Canada. And her famous you know slogan was that since gay people can't reproduce, they need to recruit. And that, you know, linking um, LGBTQ identities with pedophilia, with uh, child endangerment, child exploitation, 
when in fact, actually, the research shows us that, you know, well over 95% of pedophiles in society are heterosexual men. So, you know, the threat is not from drag queens. It's not from gay and lesbian people or transgender people. Um, Same with uh, drag queen story time and challenging, you know, books and school libraries and inclusive curriculum and events or, you know, pride flags going up over schools. This notion that somehow talking about LGBTQ issues is like a virus or a contagion that it's going to, you know, quote unquote, pollute the minds of confused or vulnerable children to somehow enter into a deviant, you know, lifestyle, you know, which we absolutely know is is completely false, right? That people are born this way and LGBTQ people have existed in every facet of society, every religion, every culture throughout um, the history of the planet. Um, so, you know, this is not a recent phenomenon of any kind. And there never seems to be an argument that all the movies and the books and the songs on the radio and the and the Saturday morning cartoons groom someone to be heterosexual. Yeah, well, if that were the case, right, then uh, that's the dominant culture in society, you know, but heterosexuality is so dominant and presumed, you know, if it wasn't, no one would ever need to come out and say otherwise, because it just simply wouldn't matter. So that, you know, that really shows you, um, you know, what we're dealing with in, in our societies, this default ex- expectation that everyone is born heterosexual and that's the superior sexual orientation or the, or the only one. And to be different is seen to be, you know, deviant or not, quote unquote, normal or abnormal. And so, you know, we've talked about some of the challenges that are out there right now, and they seem they seem vast and they seem immense, and they seem that it could take a very long time to to work through these and, and get people on board, get governments on board, uh, get high profile personalities on board, get politicians on board. Um, and I'm not sure how to talk about progress when there's still all of this lingering. But are you able to quantify the progress that's been made over the years when it comes in this country? There were there were you know you go back and it's it's not all that far when. You couldn't get a pride parade uh, recognized in a city, and then you couldn't get a pride month recognized in the city. And then over time, they just became a thing, and they became normal, and they became, uh, you know, things that the 2SLGBT community would celebrate and members and non-members of the community would celebrate. Yeah, no, there has been a lot of progress, particularly, you know, here in Canada, where we're, we're very fortunate. We're probably one of the, the world leaders when it comes to LGBT equality and and human rights, you know, in my own lifetime, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'll be turning 52 years old this year. And uh, I've seen immense change from LGBTQ people being considered to be criminals, to having to go, you know, uh, under conversion therapy, or electric shock therapy, or lobotomies to try to change them to, you know, where we have human rights protections, where no one can be fired from their job, because of their sexual orientation or gender identity to being the fourth country in the world that has legalized same-sex marriage. And so um, I think what we're dealing with right now is a lot of people who uh, are seeing the world change around them very rapidly and don't really know how to process that change. But I take great heart because of our young people and, you know, polls consistently show that, uh, you know, the vast majority of young people don't see gender as a binary and they understand that, you know, sexual sexual orientation is just another facet of uh, human diversity. And in, in increasing numbers, when you look at this, this new generation under 30, um, 25% or more of them identify as non-heterosexual. So these are vast changes. The, 
The challenge is they're not in the positions of leadership to make the laws and to make the policies. So, um, you know, in some ways, um, many people feel we have to wait for the dinosaurs to die off before we really see society begin to change. You mentioned the word fear. Do you think that that's what is at the heart of some of this for for somebody who has known things to be a certain way for their entire life and now things seem like they're changing and it seems like it's different and somehow they feel personally threatened by that? Yeah, well, you you need um, you need a you know someone to blame for often for the the kind of change that that's happening, and so you know this is where some governments around the world choose these kind of scapegoats to to focus attention, which is really a, a, con, a convenient distraction from what's you know really going on in society in terms of uh, inequality or uh, oppression, uh, you know, with that. So uh, I think you know the big answer here is education. And hate is a learned value, you know, therefore, you know, I look at that meaning that if hate is a learned value, it also could be unlearned. And so if we believe that no one is born with hate in the heart, this is why we really need to focus in on schools, right? Schools are where we're building that next generation of leaders, our, our future, you know, citizens. And that's why, you know, talking about LGBTQ issues in schools is so contested, right? That's the battleground you know, right now, because people, you know, think that if we control the curriculum, somehow we're going to prevent, you know, people from being LGBTQ or people from learning about, you know, the the natural form of diversity this is in the world. And it's nothing to be afraid of, but we attack what we don't know, right? And and that's so much based in fear and ignorance. And that's where prejudice and discrimination comes from. And, ju- and just one last one, if I could, here we are at the beginning of Pride Month in Canada. W- would you are you more pessimistic or optimistic about the future? Oh, I'm very optimistic. You know, pride is bigger than ever in Canada. You know, I know the Winnipeg, for example, just had their largest pride parade in uh, the history. There, um, you know, in uh, in Edmonton, where it's not just Pride Month, it's called the Summer of Pride. There are over uh, seventy plus different events happening, including from some of our major leaders, like the Edmonton Oilers hosting a a Pride Cup in the summer celebrating LGBTQ inclusion. Uh, and that's what we need. We need more of our, um, our our corporations. We need more of our sports teams, more of our, our government officials all standing up and, and celebrating this community and this immense, you know, privilege that we have in Canadian society where diversity, you know, is really the future uh, of Canada. Dr. Wells, thank you for your time tonight. We really do appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. Happy Pride to uh, everyone listening. Now we're going to talk, and we've we've touched on this a little bit already uh, during the course of the show, and just asking you if you're ready. Are we at that point where you would be ready uh, for labels, dangers, danger labels on bottles of alcohol, maybe similar to what we've seen on cigarettes for a couple of decades now? Uh, We're going to be speaking with Patrick Brazo, who is a senator, uh, who is who's kind of pushing that and has a bill that would do exactly that. Um, a recent report by the Canadian Alcohol Policy Evaluation Project gave failing grades to every province, territory, and the federal government on meeting public health standards for alcohol policies. 
The study graded the jurisdictions on things like pricing, taxation, health and safety messaging. And that study came on the heels of the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction, which recently were. And I think this is the one that we're all probably a little more familiar with. It certainly got a lot of play when it came out because it was such a drastic departure from where we had been in terms of guidance. This was the one you'll remember that said no alcohol is safe to consume. For years, you know, there were stories that, you know, maybe wine is good for you. Maybe a couple of glasses of alcohol a week, might there might be some medicinal benefits to that. This study said that no alcohol is safe to consume and no one should be drinking more than two drinks a week, a drastic reduction from the previous guidance of 15 drinks per week for men and 10 for women. So drastic departure. There is a lot going on and we're happy to have Senator Patrick Razzo on the program uh, to kind of talk about it with us. Uh, Senator, welcome to the show. Good evening, Sid. How are you today? I am excellent, thank you. And and there is a lot to cover here because, uh, as you know, I mean, Canadians, we like our cold beer on the deck on a hot summer's day. We like a glass of wine with our meals. How How do we go about if we're going to change people's perceptions about what we're willing to accept and abide by when it comes to alcohol consumption? Well, look, uh, first and foremost, there's absolutely nothing wrong with any Canadian enjoying a, a, an alcoholic uh, beverage. Uh, you know, the, the, the bill that I introduced in the Senate, uh, Bill S-254, uh, is all about uh, trying to provide labels uh, in terms of the uh, causal link between alcohol consumption, actually a small amount of alcohol consumption, and, and cancer, uh, and actually uh, up to seven known uh, fatal cancers. And so, um, you know, when I had, uh, you know, personal problems uh, with alcohol, and for those who know me, uh, I've been quite open in terms of my struggles and in terms of alcohol abuse. Uh, but when I had those problems, I started doing my own personal um, research into alcohol and the negative impacts of alcohol. And I found myself to be in the 75% category of Canadians uh, who was not aware uh, that uh, consumption of alcohol uh, could cause uh, up to uh, seven known fatal cancers. And, uh, and that just astounded me. And I thought, uh, what could I do to, uh, you know, on a, on a professional level, using my position uh, to shed light over this matter. And, and this is why I've introduced uh, the bill in the Senate to, uh, to try and raise awareness about uh, the negative impacts of alcohol. And messaging is important. And this was where I think that there's certainly the potential for Canadians to get caught in the weeds on, on this debate and this discussion because uh, you said, and I think you probably reflect the, the opinion of, of the majority of Canadians, who say there's nothing wrong with having a beer on the deck on a hot summer's day or a glass of wine with your meal, but the Centre on Substance Use and Addiction is warning that no alcohol is safe. So people could see that as a bit of a contradiction. We'll leave that aside for now. I, want to, I do want to address the issue of labels. I think it was Yukon a few years ago that tried this. They put some labels, not on all bottles. My understanding, it was on some, and you can correct me and kind of walk me through this. Uh, You're more well-versed in this than I am. And it seemed that they were getting noticed. If I recall, there was uh, an increase of maybe 6 or 7% or a decrease in sales of 6 or 7% in those bottles that had warning labels on them, and then an increase in those that didn't. So it seemed that people were at least noticing them, and it was having an impact, whether that immediately led to a change in their behalf, in their habits remains to be seen, I guess. Well, it does remain to be seen, and, and you, you, you explained it quite right. Uh, there was a, a test case back in 2018 in uh, the Yukon 
where for a one-month period there were labels on alcoholic uh, uh, bottles uh, in the Yukon. And uh, after 30 days, uh, sales uh, declined or de- decreased uh, approximately 7%. Uh, and so there's a, a perfect demonstration that that, uh, that demonstrates uh, how labels uh, are are uh, in fact effective. Uh, but that being said, unfortunately, uh, the the project was uh, terminated after 30 days because the alcohol industry applied so much pressure uh, and even um, uh, even uh, threatened to sue uh, the Yukon government over uh, introducing labels. And so. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't last very long, but uh, but this is why I think it's important that uh, every Canadian uh, has a right to know. Every Canadian consumer, whether they consume alcohol or not, have a right to know the, the health impacts. And in this case, it's the causal link between uh, a small consumption of alcohol and seven fatal cancers. And, and so this is all about providing consumers the health information that, unfortunately, not too many are, are currently aware of. Do you realistically think this would ever have a chance of passing right now? Not years from now, but right now. Well, look, uh, you know that's that's a very good question. Uh, when I when I started this endeavor, and uh, you know, just a little over a year ago, or a little under a year ago, when I introduced my bill back in in November, uh, but I, I didn't think that uh, I didn't think that the chances of my bill going forward quickly would be very good because. Uh, just because of the fact that not many Canadians are aware uh, about the causal link between alcohol consumption uh, and cancer. But, but that, that being said, just last week, uh, my bill uh, was, uh, uh, got uh, uh, accepted at second reading uh, and was sent to the Senate Standing Committee on uh, Social Affairs, Science and Technology uh, for further study. And so that in itself is a huge step forward because uh, I thought that uh, realistically, when I began this endeavor, that it was going to be hard to get this study or this bill into a committee room. Uh, but uh, lo and behold, uh, just the fact that this is a nonpartisan bill, uh, I am an independent senator, and it, it's all about providing health information to Canadians. Uh, and even uh, a leader of a Senate group last week uh, mentioned that this, uh, this uh, alcohol labeling bill is a perfect example of what should be sent to a Senate committee uh, for further study uh, for the benefit of Canadians. And, you know, following up on, on, on some of what you were just pointing out, particularly when you were mentioning that the vast majority of Canadians, and I think you're right, uh, were unaware and remain unaware of the causal effect of alcohol in terms of these cancers. And we do need to follow science, and we do need to stand the science up and follow it and, and, and let, it, let it lead us in the right direction. And I draw the parallel with cigarettes, and I know there's, there's, there's not a direct parallel between cigarettes and alcohol, but that's, I think, the one that people can relate to when the labels first uh, appeared on cigarette packages, and then they became increasingly more graphic, and they did seem to have an impact. But when they first appeared on cigarette package, it seemed society was ready. It seemed that we had been, we had been educated for decades that there was, no, there was no such thing as responsible smoking, that going from 30 cigarettes a day to 20 cigarettes a day was not an example of responsible smoking, that smoking caused cancer and you either smoked or you didn't. And the consumption was already on the way down. And so when, when, when the graphic images appeared, it just seemed like a natural evolution. Do you think it would be more of a, of a shock to consumers uh, to walk in in 2023 or 2024 
to a liquor store and see these labels on a bottle of beer or uh, a case of wine? Well, I, I think the time has come. Uh, you know, I don't think it takes a rocket science to figure out that uh, alcohol is, is, not, is not good for us. Uh, but that being said, there is science. There is uh, some hard science. There is, there's even uh, Canadian uh, science out of the University of Victoria, which suggests that uh, as little amount of alcohol is best. But that being said, people have, uh, have their own personal choices to make. But, you know, we never hear about, uh, oh, let's smoke responsibly. We never hear the tobacco industry talk about let's smoke responsibly. But we hear about the alcohol uh, uh, industry always talk about drink responsibly. Well, how are Canadians to drink responsibly when, when number one, they don't know what constitutes a standard drink? Uh, which is what is asking, which is what I'm asking through my bill. Number two, we want to know how many standard drinks are in a container, in a can of beer, in a king can, in a in a bottle of wine. Because if we if Canadians are to drink responsibly, then we have to know how many uh, drinks are standard drinks are in those containers. And the the most important thing, we're, we're I'm asking for a clear uh, black and white message from Health Canada that states that uh, alcohol uh, causes seven fatal cancers. Senator Brazo, we're going to ask you. And I, and I was Sorry. just going to say, uh, just finally, and, and I think that, uh, especially with the youth uh, today, uh, wanting to know what their phones, what minerals their phones are made of, uh, what's in their food, what they're ingesting, uh, I, I, I think here's a, uh, you know, a potential uh, to raise uh, uh, some serious awareness on the health uh, issue concerning alcohol, uh, and perhaps this will uh, will lead to uh, to a reduction in, in people uh, looking to alcohol for uh, for fun or for pleasure or for, for other reasons. But uh, but we have to start having that conversation at least now. Senator Brazo, I, I wanted to ask you about the politics of this. Um, you know, politicians listen to their constituents. They listen to industry organizations. They raise money for campaigns. Uh, various jurisdictions uh, rely on the sale of alcohol to uh, generate billions of dollars in revenue every year. Is the is the money and financial part of this a roadblock in your efforts, or does it factor in at all? Well, it's, it certainly plays into into the equation because obviously, when we hear governments talk about uh, alcohol, uh, we we often hear uh, them talk about how much uh, revenue it generates, uh, and and that's true. But unfortunately, uh, we don't hear very often about those same governments. Uh, about how much alcohol costs on our society uh, as a whole, on our legal system, our justice system, uh, drinking and driving, the deaths caused by drinking and driving. And let's not forget, there's 17,000 deaths in Canada per year that are attributable, attributable to, to cancer. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we have to take those, those things into consideration uh, when moving forward. But unfortunately, uh, politics uh, do uh, play a big part. And uh, let's not forget the, the alcohol industry itself uh, is very, very powerful. They have a lot of human resources and they have a lot of financial resources and they are doing everything and they are saying everything possible to politicians and others and even to the Canadian public. They're doing everything possible to ensure that there are no such labels on their products because who would want the word cancer on their products? Of course, it would lead to a decline in sales and, and they're doing everything possible. And so this is why it's so important that that every Canadian has access to this information so that they can start asking questions and start raising uh, their own awareness with their, their, their politicians uh, to, to perhaps start acting because the day is coming and the day will, will come fast enough. 
On a personal note, you mentioned earlier in the interview, Senator Brazo, about your personal struggles with alcohol. Looking back, with the measures that you're proposing, uh, particularly, I guess, the, the labeling of, of bottles of alcohol, would would that have had an impact on you when you were drinking? Well, that's a very good question. And, uh, you know, obviously that's, that's a hypothetical question. It, it would be hard to go back in time. Uh, you know, the answer is perhaps yes, perhaps perhaps no, I don't know. But but what I do know, and here's my reality, and, and I'm speaking for myself only, but, you know, they're, they're on two occasions. Uh, I, I tried to end my life, uh, and had it not been for alcohol, I would have never tried to commit suicide. But, uh, you know, with, with other issues at play and, and alcohol, unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I saw the, the, the bottom of the barrel and I, I, saw, I saw a lot of darkness because I was, I was feeling a lot, a lot of shame and I was afraid to go get help. I, I, was, I, was, I was ashamed to go get help. Um, and, and it's when I woke up from, uh, from a coma two days after I, I tried to commit suicide in 2016 that I, I slowly, um, you know, slowly tried to change my life. And by introducing this bill, um, it's something that I'm very proud of because it's a nonpartisan bill. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot of politics at play, but it's a nonpartisan bill. And it's all about the well-being and health of Canadians. And it's, it's not, you know, this bill is just not about, uh, you know, because of myself, because I had problems or for people that have al- problems with alcohol. It's for every single Canadian, whether they drink or not, just to have that basic information. And we're not reinventing the wheel. We did the same thing with tobacco products. And so in my view, uh, I don't think that alcohol, which is a, has been labeled a carcinogen since 1988, just like asbestos and, and, and tobacco, uh, they should not get a free pass on, on not having labels uh, warning their consumers about the risks. And in asking that question, we should note as well, there are obviously the, the health risks, the physical health risk, and then there are also the addictive and the mental health issues that arise from alcohol as well. It's, it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, I'm sure some would think it's inevitable that these labels will appear at some point on these products, and, and maybe the question is, is the timing and when. Senator Brazo, thanks for your time tonight. Well, thank you for taking the time because I know it's not an issue that's uh, everyone's cup of tea, but uh, it's about uh, it's about health and it's about the health of Canadians. Right now, as promised, we're going to talk about Canada's healthcare system, and if it isn't in crisis, it certainly it seems that we could probably see it from here if we listen to and watch the news every day. Wait times, shortage of healthcare workers, burnout—all cited as major issues. And this, in advance of a meeting of Canada's premiers next month. And to talk about it, here on the program today, we're joined by Dr. Alika Lafontaine, who is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, Dr. Lafontaine, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, We want to get into the statement, uh, and and people can find it on the uh, website of the Canadian Medical Association, and there's been lots of news coverage of it so far today. And I'll I'll just read part of it. It says, as Canadians continue to struggle to access health care in a timely fashion, organizations representing physicians, nurses, and hospitals across the country are calling on all premiers to ensure health system reform is on the agenda at their meetings next month in Winnipeg. Why the need, doctor, for this statement? I think it's clear to patients across the country that the last couple of years have been really hard on healthcare systems, in particular the access that they've had to healthcare. Last summer, we saw rolling closures of emergency rooms across the country. Surgical services were impacted. You know, primary care in the community continues to be a struggle for a lot of patients trying to find the care that they need. 
All of this will be accelerated if the federal, provincial, and territorial governments don't stay focused on this problem. And I, I think the the fact that we have organizations across the country and across different types of providers all saying with one voice, we have to have federal, provincial, and territorial governments continue to focus on this problem really underscores the important role that they have and just how important it is that we, we don't take our eye off the ball because things definitely can get worse. And if I can, if I can pick a couple of... Uh Statements again, I'll just go back to the statement that the, the Canadian Medical Association released today, estimated that as many as 6 million Canadians don't have a primary care provider. Emergency departments across the country struggling because of overwhelming demand and a shortage of healthcare professionals. Wait times for surgeries and diagnostic tests are far too long. Healthcare providers are burned out. How? What is the starting point for an issue and a problem that just seems so vast and all-encompassing? So I, I think for patients, when they come into the system, they look across to the person that's supposed to be helping them navigate through the system and, and think to themselves, if only this person would act, everything would be fixed. And I, I think increasingly the ability that we have as frontline providers to be the glue that keeps a system that has increasingly been more and more broken together um, it's just too heavy of a weight to expect anyone to bear. And our ability to do that is becoming worse and worse. And, and you're seeing that happen as the impacts on access and the ability of patients to, to go through for health services uh, is getting longer and longer, you know, from those statistics that you cite. And, you know, the, the only groups that can change the ways that we practice, the resources that we have, are provincial and territorial governments, the federal government. So we, we have the resources put aside through the recent health budget. It was the largest investment in healthcare by a federal government since 2004. What we're now waiting for is provincial and territory governments to take that funding and have it impact the front line. That way we can fix these problems that patients have with getting access. I do want to talk about, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, the politics of healthcare. But I also want to pick up on, uh, you know, for example, if if emergency wait times are an issue, but the reason or one of the potential reasons that it's an issue in the emergency rooms is because people are going to emergency rooms because they don't have a doctor. Uh, everything seems interconnected. How do you how do you start to address that? So I, I think the first thing is just to acknowledge that the most important thing we're trying to solve is access for patients. So how do we enable patients to access health services in ways that make sense for them? So when someone needs something from primary care, where do they go? They go first to their community physician. If they can't get in there, they go to a walk-in clinic. They use virtual care. And usually as a last resort, they go to an emergency room. And so when our emergency rooms are overwhelmed, there's probably big impacts that are not being seen by folks in those other three areas that I talked about. And so uh, having having a approach that deals with that access issue, but that reflects the ways that patients actually move through systems, I think is incredibly important. Now, the, the second part of it is ensuring that we have healthy working environments for providers. You know, the the disparate state of health human resources in this country is a direct result of working environments getting worse and worse over the last couple of decades. And unless we address those problems, we can't keep people staying in those systems. We can increase the amount that we train, but if we don't ensure that those people who we train can thrive in the environments that we ask them to practice in, uh, all of that effort is, is not going to be as effective as it could be. And so it's those two sides of the equation. Now, where do you start? I think you start by leaning into data with the health transfer agreement 
you know, we're going to have a persistent patient ID across this country, I believe, pretty soon. We're starting to do the same as far as tracking healthcare providers. Having that data and knowing where the demand is so we can match it with supply, the more we'll have an idea of where those other investments can go. The issue of burnout and these these overwhelming caseloads that we hear about with, with healthcare workers, that seems, doctor, like it would be uh, more of a long-term uh, solution. That's, that seems like a pretty big issue because all of these factors that we're talking about in the healthcare system kind of filter down to those frontline workers. Uh, how long and, and how big of an issue is that specific part of it to tackle? Well, I think changing culture within healthcare systems definitely is a medium to long-term investment. But we can have better working environments today, just in the same way that you can have folks working in industries that traditionally haven't had that great working environments. They can have little bubbles of uh, good working environments, depending on who administrates the system and the way that they're engaged and listened to. You know, and a lot of these factors aren't related to income. They're related to the ability that people have to, to raise and share problems that they see, to actually see those problems translate into fixes, to feel valued at work, to, to actually have people treat them like people. You know, and, and I think that those types of interventions can happen today if people choose to change things in the, in the same way that patients can have better experiences with healthcare providers just by the, those providers choosing to, to change the way that they interact and, and treat them. Uh, the next time that we see them. And so there's both short and long-term issues, but I think a lot of that burnout can be dealt with immediately. Last week, there was a hospital, I think it was in Minden, Ontario, that announced it would permanently close its local ER. That I think that was because of a, a strain in staffing. At the same time, there were, were doctors in Calgary that uh, sounded the alarm over the state of emergency care in that city. So there, there are issues in in big cities and in smaller centers, but is it worse in those in, in those smaller centers and in rural communities? I, I think unless you look at what's actually happening at the site, it's difficult to give a broad statement to that. But I will tell you that in smaller locations, you often have providers, whether they're physicians or nurses or pharmacists or any other allied provider, wearing many hats and doing many tasks that they tend not to do in larger urban centers. And so, for example, in the place that I work in Grand Prairie, which is in northern Alberta, um, you have family physicians who also do the babies, who act as surgical assists, who are hospitalists inside the hospital. You know, some of them work in palliative care and in cancer care. You know, one of those folks gets up and leaves. That impacts multiple services. And so in that way, it ends up having a much broader effect. And so I, I think, once again, it's moving into that data to get an idea of not only what category you fit into as a physician, but what do you literally do? day to day. It's, it's incredible that Facebook can predict what to buy my nine-year-old for his birthday, but it has no idea the types of services, but the health system has no idea what kinds of services I provide as an anesthesiologist. Uh, Dr. LaFontaine, if, if, if this sort of talk, the things that we're talking about right now and that have been written about uh, for weeks and months now, uh, is there a possibility or is there a fear that that could affect the recruitment of new people into the system? I think the ways that they experience healthcare when they start working is the biggest factor. Obviously, people will be less inclined to go to places that, that have bad reputations, that have been in the news talking about problems, et cetera. But healthcare workers are used to crisis, and, and we're all very interested in helping people get what they need and rebuild them. You know, that, that, that's, a, that's a talent that healthcare providers, especially at the front line, have shown time after time over the past decade keeping this healthcare system working. 
And so I, I think that if people show up and they have better experiences, that will be the deciding factor whether or not we can rebuild local access. Are there just overall, though, in, in, in terms of recruitment into the, the system as an overarching theme, are just as many people wanting to go to medical school now as there were 20 or 30 years ago, just as many people wanting to become nurses and practitioners? You know, I, I'm not sure the numbers of folks going into healthcare professions, but I do know that in specialties that have been especially hard hit with uh, worse and worse working environments, family medicine is, is a, a, a example that I think is really relevant. There has been a decrease in folks choosing those those specialties. And so I, I think you are seeing some of that change. Um, but as far as whether or not it's impacting folks actually going into healthcare, I, I'm not 100% sure. You did mention, and, and I said we would get to uh, the unfortunate reality that politics does play some role in terms of the delivery of health care uh, in this in this country. Different jurisdictions have different ideas about the direction of health care, funding for health care. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau did announce Ottawa was giving $196 billion uh, for the Canada health transfer over the next 10 years. I believe all but Quebec uh, at this point has signed on to the deal in principle. So when you look at that, and, you, and I know you briefly referenced it earlier in, in the conversation, where does that take us? Is that a positive or what steps do you need to, to see taken from here? So I think one of the predictors of the future is what happened in the past. And we know that in 2004, we had the second largest investment in healthcare relative to what happened this year, which is the largest. And what happened after 2004, we had the creation of the Wait Times Alliance. We started working on things called clinical pathways, finding ways to help patients navigate through systems that they just didn't have the support for before. Patient navigation became a thing. You know, all of these changes happened as a result of that initial funding. And I think the most important thing to pay attention to in this next round is whether or not we have the collaboration that we saw in 2004. That will be the determining factor of whether or not we solve these challenges. How confident are you right now that these different jurisdictions are prepared to work collaboratively together to come to, uh, to, come to some sort of solution or resolution? I think what's really clear for healthcare systems across the country is that we're all swimming in the same problems. The idea that we all have different challenges, I think, for the most part, uh, isn't true in this moment. We're all struggling with health human resources. We're all struggling to maintain access to patients. And pretty much everywhere across Canada at some point is becoming an unhealthy work environment. And so I think because we have these shared problems, we have a real chance to have shared solutions. And you are seeing provinces start to work together. You have the Atlantic provinces creating a first in its history Atlantic registry where now physicians can freely move between, you know, those four provinces and ensure that as a resource. You're seeing provinces change the way that they recognize credentialing across the country. People are moving away from fee-for-service towards, you know, alternative fee models in, in BC and Saskatchewan and, and elsewhere. So there, there is movement. Canadians should have some confidence that things are moving forward, but you know, the, the reason for the statement and the reason why we're bringing in together partners across the country is we have to lean in and do even more if we're going to if we're going to meet the, 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 the size of this crisis. And it, it continues to get bigger every day. Would you characterize yourself just one last one, if I could, doctor, would you characterize yourself right now as optimistic over where health care in this country is headed over the next three to five years? I, I think at their core, every health provider is optimistic. You know, when, when I show up at uh, a patient's door after they've had a heart attack in hospital, 
I'm optimistic that the things that I can do can save that patient's life and help them to thrive after they have that, that low point in their health. And I think that's the same for most healthcare providers across the country. Every time we show up for work, it's us putting down uh, our, our flag in the ground saying, you know, I am optimistic that I can make a difference today and things can get better. So I, I think that drawing into that optimism and making sure those sparks become, you know, a flame for healthcare providers across the country, this is really the turning point for our healthcare system. And, and I think our, our leaders uh, in federal, provincial, and territorial governments need to step up to the challenge. And I, I'm hopeful that they will. Doctor, thank you for your time. We do appreciate it. Thank you. And there has been a lot going on over the last two, three, four years that in in many ways has negatively impacted the restaurant business. We're joined tonight by Mark Van Schelwitz, who's a vice president with Restaurants Canada. It's a national association representing Canada's food service industry. Mark, thanks for taking the time with us tonight. Good evening, Sid. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I want to talk, there's there's so much that goes into this, but we're kind of uh, wanted to, to have you on tonight because we're hearing, uh, you could say anecdotally, but it just seems there's so much of it out there that the reality is that, that there's some real uh, concerns and struggles in the Canadian restaurant industry. I'm not sure where to start with this, but I'm, I'm wondering if we could go back pre-COVID, which let's call it three years ago, roughly. Um, and I'm not, maybe not all the ills spring from COVID restrictions to where we are now. But what was the restaurant industry like three or four years ago? Uh, Great question, Sid. I mean, the actual industry was growing. I mean, we still already before the pandemic had some labor shortages, obviously not as acute as they are right now, but uh, uh, generally sales were good. Traffic was strong. uh, But of course, uh, the pandemic and everything that's followed has written a very different story. But even then, in 2019, you have to remember that this is a very uh, uh, low-margin, highly competitive industry, and there was already a lot of turnover in the industry. That's just the the nature of the game. I mean, a friend of mine once says the best restaurateurs are usually accountants because it really is a penny's business. And the difference between making money and losing money, even in good times, is is really tight. And our average industry pre-tax profitability before uh, COVID was around 4% for the industry, between 4 and 5 depending on which province you're in. 4%. That would be an eye-opener. Even to a lot of people that own businesses in other sectors, 4% would be an eye-opener. Um, so what goes, and so we're going to, I think, wind our way from uh, pre-COVID through the COVID restrictions and then to where we are now, and then maybe get some insight onto you and uh, from you rather on, on where you think this industry can go and should go and, and is headed. But before we do that, the fundamentals of owning a small independent restaurant. Somebody listening right now has always had that dream of opening a restaurant. And before you say, don't do it, uh, just walk us through uh, what goes into that. What, what, what does someone need to take into consideration before they, they, they start down this road? Well, first and foremost, you have to have some sort of financing and capital to get into it. You have to negotiate a really good lease for a good location where you're going to get the type of traffic that's going to, intent, that's going to attract the type of clientele that you want. 
And it's the most regulated business out there. You have to make sure you get all your approvals. You have to get food safety permits, liquor permit if you're you know, selling liquor. Um, there's just a, a workers' compensation. I mean, there, there's quite a few regulatory things that you have to make sure that you're doing properly. And then, of course, you have to purchase the kitchen equipment, uh, the fridges, the, the stoves, the ovens. And, and, then, and that can be quite a capital cost there as well. And then, of course, your labor. And we're one of the most labor-intensive industries, so you have to make sure you have a good staff. Because uh, that, you know, every revenue dollar that comes in, about a third of it's going to labor right away. So you have to make sure you have good staff that know what they're doing as well, both in the back of the house and the front of the house. So I said off the top that we tend to romanticize, uh, you know, small restaurant ownership. This doesn't sound very romantic right now. Uh, so why get into it? Because there's, there's got to there's be a reason that so many people are attracted to it. You know, there's, it's a labor of love. I mean, most of the people that are in, this, in our industry, they love hospitality. They love the food they cook. A lot of the chefs are become chef owners because it gives them that ability to be creative with their menu items and do the types of things. And, and many of them are just extremely gratified when that satisfied guest leaves the door and, you know, you've actually made a buck that night. It's a pretty satisfying feeling, but it's a really hard work. It's really a labor of love type of business. And uh, certainly, you know, what went through with COVID and where we're at now, it, it certainly is a real struggle for our members as we're in what I would call a post-pandemic fight for survival uh, right now. I mean, during the pandemic, we all know about the lockdowns and, you know, we lost more than half of our staff in most provinces and then you have to attract them back. And now the post-pandemic hangover part of it, we did have customers come back in, but now we're facing this triple whammy of uh, inflationary soaring cost increases on our food and beverage, on our labor, insurance, energy costs, all of those things are skyrocketing. Plus, you have to remember during the pandemic, most people had to, in the industry had to take on debt, whether it's through SIBA loans or other market debt, just to keep their lights on and keep their people employed. So as a result of that, our latest survey, which is the worst one that I've seen ever as far as Q1 2023, we had a record 51% of our members that are unprofitable, 37 that are actually percent that are actually losing money, and another 17 percent that are just breaking even, and that's through the, that combination of those soaring inflationary costs, the pandemic debt, and then importantly as well, labor shortages. We're suffering under acute labor shortages. They've subsided a little bit in the past few months, but. Uh, on average, we're, our restaurants are only operating at 80% capacity because they just don't have enough staff to open all the hours they would like to open. And, of course, when you're not open, you're not generating the revenue to pay back the debt. So it's a it's a never-ending circle. Uh, and that's why last year we saw your restaurant bankruptcies go up 116%. And they could go even higher because we've got about a quarter of our members saying, unless things improve dramatically, they don't think that they're going to be able to survive the year. Um, and, of course, we have 20% of our members saying they're just not in a position to be able to pay back those SIBA loans, which are due at the end of this year as well. So uh, so I guess we've been saying to all levels of government, look, the industry really needs help. We're the last industry to sort of recover from the pandemic. And, and unfortunately, uh, these inflationary concerns are not going anywhere, that we don't see any big... Um, decline in food prices or energy prices. And, and of course, with carbon taxes as well, 
people don't often think of restaurants being an energy consumer, but of course we have to, you know, we need natural gas to cook your food, electricity is to cool it. And, and uh, so it, it's actually a pretty uh, energy intense industry as well. And then of course, everything has to be delivered to the restaurant. So we're seeing these extra transportation charges because of, uh, of the energy costs that are there right now. So, so it's a, it's a tough, tough situation right now. And, what our members are telling us is, you know, please, governments, do no further harm. Uh, there was a study by the Vancouver Board of Trade that came out just a week ago that in the last year and a half, there's been about $6.5 billion worth of extra costs put on to uh, businesses. And uh, in our industry, uh, that's the worst time to, to add new government-mandated costs uh, onto the equation as well, because as it is, they're short-staffed and they just don't have the capital and they don't have the revenue to, to be able to pay all these additional mandated policy costs. So are there new government mandates coming in that, that, that you think are going to negatively impact the industry? Oh, certainly. Well, in the last year or so, we had, uh, you know, in British Columbia, where I'm located, we had a new employer's health tax. We had paid sick leave for five days, a new statutory holiday, and then another 7% increase in minimum wage. And if you look at that over the last decade, minimum wage in BC went up about 50%, whereas CPI was only up about 22%. So, uh, and it doesn't just affect those minimum wage earners because you have to, that really ratchets up your whole salary structure as well when, when those mandatory costs go in. So so labor costs are a problem. And then, of course, we've got another big issue uh, where the industry's probably changed forever from the pre-COVID time in the sense that uh, as a result of COVID, uh, there was this huge shift to takeout and delivery. And before COVID, the average full-service restaurant, maybe 15 to 20% max would be takeout and delivery. Now that's closer to 40% of an average restaurant sales mixes from takeout and delivery. So that's really happening big change on the industry. And at the same time, we've got all these, you know, single-use item bylaws, environmental regulations coming in uh, that are really making it more costly, actually, to service that takeout and delivery market on top of everything else. So, so you know, what we're finding and what we're hearing from members is, gee, we wish we didn't have so many seats. I think the future restaurant of the future is going to be fewer seats, a dedicated takeout and delivery area. Uh, and uh, sort of that seems to be the template for an on-premise restaurant that I think will be more successful going forward, as opposed to the big two, three hundred seat restaurants. For the uh, break mark, you were telling us the average margin I think for uh, restaurants is four percent, and roughly only half are able to make a profit in this day and age. Is now, that, that was, all restaurants? Yeah, that was uh, really before the pandemic, we were at 4%. Now that average would be a lot lower, considering that you've got half the industry that isn't making any money at all. Uh, so obviously those margins have come down. But uh, to your other point, uh, what restaurants are hurting more than others? I mean, I think the smaller independents are probably hurting more than the chains. Uh, they've got more capital and they're a little bit more sophisticated. But even they've got uh, some struggles, as we've heard from a number of cases from restaurant closures. And it's really a shame that, uh, according to our economist, uh, right now for every one restaurant that opens, we're having two close. So the industry is actually shrinking right now uh, because, you know, average venue inflation last year was 6% because we can't pass along all these inflationary costs under the consumer or we'll lose our guests. So, uh, you know, it's really difficult when your costs are going up between 15 and 30 percent 
and you can only pass along about 6% of that in, in menu inflation. And as I said beforehand, too, this shift to takeout and delivery, it really took the industry some time to even figure out how to do that profitably because, you know, you've got delivery fees on top of that, and there are just certain menu items that don't uh, travel as well. So there's been a lot of menu rejuggling that's been going on in the industry as well, also factoring in some of those food cost products that have really gone up more than others. So, so you know, the, the real future, I think, is, is to, to focus more on that takeout delivery market. You're hearing more stories about ghost kitchens that are coming on, where basically it isn't just a kitchen that does takeout and delivery only, and that way they don't have any of the overhead for that front of the house, for the decor, and for your staff at the front of the house. So, so those are popular things. And uh, one of the challenges that we also have had since the pandemic is uh, the whole uh, work-from-home situation has really changed considerably. And even right now, we still have about 32% of people that are working at home and then another uh, you know, portion of the, of the population that are doing sort of a hybrid model. So we only have about 55% of the people that are working entirely on site. And, of course, that impacts your lunch business uh, in, in an urban centre especially. Um, so, so, you know, that's another challenge that the industry is working on. And how do we get these people back into the restaurant as opposed to, uh, you know, doing delivery from home. Because once you have a, somebody, a guest sitting in your restaurant, it gives you the opportunity to give them a great dining experience and wine and desserts and things like that that you're not usually going to get just from a, a takeout meal. With things changing rapidly in, in just about every sector, I know it's very difficult to forecast five or ten years down the road, and it seems with everything facing the service industry and restaurants that it may be even more difficult. I am I'm very intrigued by uh, this vision of, of the restaurant of the future. And I will say off the top, I mean, the prospect of, you know, those walk in, sit down, have a nice meal at a locally owned and operated restaurant, uh, the the you know the, the thought of those going away or there being less of those in the future is not appealing to me and I'm sure uh, to many others but but this this vision of of uh, restaurants yes catering to uh delivery and takeout but also with fewer seats how how drastic of a transition would this be and how long would that take well it really depends on the restaurant and the situation what we find other restaurants doing right now that are having trouble filling those extra seats is they're doing little side businesses. They're doing evening get-togethers for, you know, various clubs and, and games and things like that. So they're trying as best they can to fill those unused seats for other purposes. But, yes, I think that transition is is, is ongoing right now. The other thing that we're seeing as well is more of a focus. One of the things that came out of COVID as well is patios. And patios, I think, are a win-win-win for everybody. So we have a lot of restaurants now, especially as the summer is coming, where most of their business is focused on those patios. People love to be outdoors, and it adds a great ambiance to the local community. If you see people outdoor in a, in a nice patio with flowers and umbrellas, and they're all having a good time. So, uh, But, you know, to your earlier point, what we don't want to see happen is to lose all those local restaurants, those local neighborhood restaurants that we We've all come to rely on as as part of our our, our lives. So we, we we know our folk favorite local restaurants, and it would be a shame to see those go away. And I think you know the industry has been very resilient. I mean, if we can get through COVID and 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 all the challenges that we've had since COVID, it's going to make for for a stronger, more resilient industry going forward. Uh, but uh, 
Uh, certainly, it's not an easy industry, but, uh, you know, like I said at the outset, you know, this is a labour of love. And most of the members that I talk to really enjoy what they're doing, even though they're putting in incredibly long hours, uh, because it's just, the, you know, the thing that we all dream about where, you know, somebody really loves what I'm cooking, what I'm preparing, the ambience, what I'm serving as far as wines. And, and I think that uh, is where a lot of people in the industry get a lot of satisfaction uh, I, from I knew we could bring it back to the romantic part of owning a restaurant. I knew we could. <laughs> and I, 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 I think I think we're out of time. I think we'll end it on that note that there is a future and it does attract that great entrepreneurial spirit and the people that are in it for the right reasons and, and will find a way to get through this and come out better for it on the other side. Mark, we appreciate your time tonight. My pleasure, Sid. Uh, I've been talking about this next guest a, l- a little bit through the course of the show because I've been really uh, excited to talk to Corey Woods. Uh, Corey is a chef, grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, and is now feeding the front lines in Ukraine. Uh, Corey, welcome to the program. Good morning, Sid. Thanks for having me. And you're speaking to us from Ukraine. And I'll, and I'll say off the top, I'm not going to ask you about locations or anything that can give too much away. I mean, there's a war going on, and, and, and we all need to appreciate that. And before we get to what you're doing right now in Ukraine, I want to, if we can, just back it up a little bit and talk about your upbringing. You grew up in Alberta. What was your childhood like? I uh, grew up in the Edmonton area, uh, Lamont, Fort Saskatchewan, Sherwood Park, and uh, um you know, living in the suburbs, I uh, had a pretty average, normal upbringing there. Um, for myself, I, I grew up in Ukrainian immersion schools, and uh, I was a Ukrainian dancer for many, many years. Um, went to Ukrainian church and played bandura for a short time. Um, the the connection to my Ukrainian heritage was something that was very uh, important in our, in our family, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, spent a lot of a lot of summers out at the Ukrainian village, and um, it was something that you know was a huge part of my identity. Um, as I grew older, I think, as with most people, when I got into my teens, that kind of drifted away a little bit, but yeah. And you would go on to become a chef. Did your love of cooking and food preparation start earlier, or did that come a little bit later in life? Um, In the beginning, I wouldn't so much say it was a love. Um, I started in 93. Uh, My father took me to a friend's restaurant in Sherrod Park and basically sat me down and told me that I was going to wash dishes and I would work whatever I was uh, whatever shifts I was put on the schedule for and um, basically don't screw it up and kind of just left me there. <laughs> and so um, I continued to do it throughout my teenage and young adult years. Um, I was, I, I struggled with homelessness and addiction and such when I was younger and the kitchen was always kind of my, uh, you know, my, my North star. It was what I, always went back to it gave me you know guaranteed hot meals I uh, it was the environment where I learned a lot of discipline and structure accountability things like that so um, and just as the years went on it turned out that I was pretty good at it I guess and so I stuck with it and then if you can bring us up to speed on on I guess how you get from Alberta to Ukraine 
Yeah. Uh, so when the, you know, I think really for me, the process started in 2014 when Russia invaded then. Um, it caused me to reflect a lot on, you know, that lost connection to my heritage. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a inkling that I wanted to do something to help. Uh, but I didn't really, you know, it wasn't until last year when the full-scale invasion took place that uh, I realized I needed to do something substantial, uh, something that was tangible and direct. Um, so I, back in February last year, I started trying to work on coming over. Uh, unfortunately, the you know, circumstances weren't right. And at the beginning of the war, there was very little infrastructure and very little support. Um, so I basically would have been coming over here, having to find a place to live and then uh, trying to find some way to help. Um, so I, I ended up going back to the coast and working for uh, the summer uh, until I could connect with an organization that was more that was in line with what I had to offer. Um, there's a lot of organizations that people can volunteer for. And however, I found that many of them were, uh, they just weren't aligned with what I knew I had to offer and um, what I wanted to be able to contribute. And one day I came across uh, Chef Shenya and Magic Food Army on Twitter and uh, immediately it clicked with me that this was, potentially somewhere that I could contribute and do so in, in a manner that directly uh, supports the troops here. Um, you know, I had thought about perhaps enlisting or something else, but at the end of the day, I just would have been another soldier with a rifle and having over 20, 25 years experience in, in restaurants and kitchens, um, I knew I could have a lot more impact on the war effort by uh, sticking with that. So I reached out and uh, I think it was less than 24 hours later after a few uh, back and forths with Shenya that I decided I'm going to go for this and started getting all the pieces uh, into place so that I could make it happen. You mentioned your struggles with homelessness. Were there people that helped you along the way? I'm curious as to what moves you to want to help the people of Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it's countless people over the years. Uh, my mom, first and foremost, I mean, she never gave up on me. And if I hadn't uh, had her, I'd probably be in jail or dead. Um, you know, youth emergency shelter society in Edmonton was a huge influence for me. Um Covenant House in Toronto when I was there. Uh, I think part of it is having lived a life where I, you know, I I was bullied a lot as a kid. I went through a lot of struggles with mental health and, like, say, the addiction and homelessness. And uh, uh, while I may not always be the most um, uh, uh, appropriate about it, I. I really don't like bullies that really don't like uh, people who are marginalized or vulnerable being picked on. And uh, that's always been reflected in my behaviors. And so when, you know, something like this comes up and in my opinion, most of the world is dragging their feet on providing the assistance necessary. Um, I realize that every single person that is able 
and needs to be able to contribute in whatever manner they can um, because Ukraine and, and her people are not getting the support they need. And so now you're with the Magic Food Army preparing food for the frontline troops in Ukraine. What does that entail? You know, I hesitate to ask, you know, what a typical day is in a situation like that. But (laughs) but how do you uh, what's happening there right now with you and and with your team? Uh, So our our primary objective is to feed the troops uh, simply. Um, So we do so in two ways. Two manners. Uh, the first is we work and live on base with the guys. Uh, we provide three meals a day in the dining hall. Um, we we are focused on doing healthy, nutritional, uh, from scratch cookery for these guys. Uh, you know, an army marches on its stomach, and having quality food uh, really goes a long, long way. Not just physical wellness but also in terms of their morale uh, and then the other direction that we we support them is we produce um, fresh meals ready to eat for them on the front lines uh, so the guys are able to place orders with us and we will do breakfasts uh, entrees sandwiches soup salads stuff like that and pack it all up for them and they take it out to the the field with them and eat it when they are ready um our overarching mission is to uh, develop and implement a template that the armed forces are going to eventually be able to um, repeat again and again yeah. throughout uh, throughout the country. Uh, right now, a lot of the food delivery services is very ad hoc. Um, some of the guys are lucky if they get protein in a day. Um, You know, this is a military that a year and a half ago was still pretty, pretty small and pretty disorganized. Um, And, you know, with the rapid rate of development and expansion, uh, much of the focus has been on weaponry and training and equipment. And there has not been a lot of focus on the food delivery systems, which are absolutely critical uh, in ensuring that troops are able to do their jobs. So we, all of our recipes, all of our systems, all of our training processes that we go through with with our volunteers are all uh, being documented, refined every day. And ultimately we will have a package that we can hand over to the AFU and, um, you know, provide training and whatever else they need so that they are able to do this on their own. Well, Corey, it's a remarkable story. Uh, we only have about 30 seconds here, and, and, and I hate to, to make it that short, but beyond the wonderful work that you and others are doing to feed the troops in Ukraine, what's it, what's it like to live there right now through all of this? Uh, you know, growing up in the safety of North America, it's a little bit jarring at times, but, uh, you know, I think it's a testament, number one, to the resilience of the people that they continue to live their lives, and it is a functional country despite being a war zone. Um, but it's also a testament to the trust that people have in the armed forces uh, that, you know, people are not evacuating en masse despite Kiev being under bombardment every night. Um, it's Ukrainians are wonderful, wonderful people. And um, it, it, you know, makes me extremely happy to, to see them um, being the strong, resilient uh, people that they are.
It's great work that you're doing, Corey, and uh, and we certainly appreciate you taking some time to uh, to spend with us tonight. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Sid. <laughs>